0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, A College Coach Conversation. Um, Over the past few months, we've been asking you to send us your thoughts on the things you'd like to hear more about, Um, or any specific questions that you might have. And in today's show, we're going to try and answer as many of those admissions and college finance questions as we can get to in the time that we have. Um, But first, while many seniors are wrapping up their admissions process at this time of year, there's actually a whole new group of students who are embarking on theirs. And the first step for most of those is figuring out where they're even going to apply. So we've done a few shows. Check the archives. If you listen to this show in the past, you know that I'm always talking about the great content we have in the archives. Um, And we've got some really good information there about how to put together a list uh, and, you know, really kind of how to think about getting started on that piece of it. And today we're going to tackle what happens once you have that list in hand. Um, And so here to discuss kind of the best way to research your colleges is my colleague, who also happens to be a former Georgetown admissions officer and did some time as a college counselor in Hong Kong, uh, Lauren Randall. Welcome, Lauren. Hi, Beth. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Super excited to have you here. And when we thought about what kinds of of things people need to be thinking about at this time of the year, a big one for us is really just you know, well, I'm trying to think about what colleges to apply to, or I've got this long list of schools that was suggested to me by, by a guidance counselor, but I really have no idea how to go from there. And so that's that's what I'm hoping we can kind of help people piece through today. Um, I think the first question that I have for you is really, um, wh- how, what kind of a role do you see research playing in the college admissions process. That's that's a great
3: start. And I think it's something that um, students and families don't really consider soon enough, the amount of time and effort that it takes to really research your college list. I Mm -hmm. find that students that start to chip away at it, really this time of year in their junior year, they are by far the most prepared to really hit the ground running when they return as seniors to finalize that list and they know where they're applying because they've done their homework. But research is extremely important, and if anything, it, it just gets you ahead of the game so that you're not scrambling um, when you're in the midst of applications to trying to find that, that perfect uh, college fit.
0: Right. Right, like while you're in the middle of trying to tackle your junior, your senior year curriculum and maybe take tests because you didn't get that out of the way. If you're listening to Getting In, hopefully, one thing you have started to really kind of take in is the idea that the earlier you start, the better, within reason. We don't want you researching colleges in middle school, um, but now is a good Definitely time not. If, if you're a junior. So, one of the things that I get asked a lot when people start their researches, they, they want to know, well, where does this school rank? What do you mm-hmm. think about, um, I've actually been fairly vocal about my thoughts about using rankings in this, but I, I'm always eager to hear other people's opinions. So what do you think about using rankings um, to either build the list in the first place or then to use that as a point of reference when you're researching schools? You know, I
3: understand why students and families rely so heavily on rankings, there, it, it starts them someplace. but the real problem with, with building your college list or cutting down your list based on rankings is that the rankings are not personal, and this process has to be personalized to you um, as a student. So rankings tell you absolutely nothing about fit. So I understand that it's a starting place, but that cannot be where your research ends. I, I find that, um, you know, students that rely on rankings are end up pretty disappointed in this process. If a, if a student were to use rankings, you know, I would say that something like um, Money Magazine's Best Colleges is probably a better ranking because at least then it talks about something else than just prestige. It talks about actual outcomes. So if you're going to rely on rankings for part of your research, really take into consideration what has gone into that formula. Um, so mm-hmm. I'd much rather than use, the, use rankings that, that rely on outcomes and not just um, name value or brand name or, or
0: selectivity of getting in. Right. And and, and so, but you bring up a good point, which is one of the reasons I think people start with rankings is because they're fairly quantifiable. What is another, um, do you have another resource that you recommend when people are looking for data, you know, basic things like how big a school is, where they're located, stuff like that?
3: Definitely. When you're, when you're starting that initial list, and, you know, trying to take it down from 3,000 colleges to maybe about 30 or so. You can really use, there's a lot of data clearinghouses. I would say the most common and popular one is College Board's Big Future. It's a great site. And that's a great place to start your research on, on, on those big things, like you said, size, location, public versus private. It's going to give you a snapshot of, of colleges that fit within the criteria that you set, so that is a great place to start, but I don't think your research can end there because those are just a few of those quantifiable factors, but it's not going to give you
0: anything deeper like culture of the school or or how you would fit within that school so where do you recommend to go for that kind of thing um, you know, things like the culture of the school, which I agree is super important, right? You, not all schools are created equal and there are places where I have students, they visit and they think immediately, wow, I just feel like I fit here. And then sometimes uh-huh. their reaction is, I don't know, I thought I was really going to love it, but it just doesn't feel like me. So right. are there, you know, what kinds of places do you typically send students to, to think about the culture element?
3: Well, I mean, in an ideal world, you'd visit every prospective college on your list. Sure. Um, yeah. But m- most likely that's not realistic. And, you know, you mentioned that I worked in Hong Kong. I worked with students who never had the opportunity to set foot on the college campus before they applied. So, you know, i start by saying that if you have the opportunity to visit a few colleges, that's going to really give you that, that immediate sense, like you were just saying, that feel. You know, I, I either mesh with this campus or not so mm-hmm. much. So taking the tour when you can, and it's possible, you know, I always suggest to, to arrange to sit in on a class in an area of interest, because a, an engineering class at one school could be totally different than at another. So um, trying to sit in on a class is a, is a great way. And if you're also on campus, I always recommend students eat at the dining hall, go in mm-hmm. and what's being served, but really look at around you. Get a general sense of that campus culture and the type of student who attends that school. Um, The dining hall will tell you a lot. However, like I said, that's not always realistic. So, a place to start, if you want to to see that campus for yourself, there are some amazing websites that offer virtual tours. Um, Just to name a few, I love Campustours.com. There's eCampusTours.com, and uVisit.com. So if you want to see how the school presents itself, if you can't be on campus, it's almost like having a virtual tour guide. It's going to be a really pretty package. So it's a good place to get a visual and get a a start um, if you can't actually be physically on that campus.
0: Yeah, I mean, the the rise of those kinds of things are really kind of amazing because you, know, you can go to a school's website and you'll see the pictures, but I used to... Um, kind of marshaled a photographer around campus as we took pictures at Penn for our publications. And I can tell you, it's amazing what a photographer can do. I mean, Penn's beautiful. I don't want to imply that it's not, but it's amazing how you can shoot something uh, and cut out everything around it to really focus on one element. It doesn't really give you a feel for the campus. It gives you a feel for a beautifully shot photo of one little piece of the campus. Whereas with these tours, um, you're gonna get a much better picture than just looking at static pictures on a website so I love that idea um, what about you know a big thing that people do turn to are guidebooks and um, mm-hmm. I think you may have already mentioned one, but what are some of the guidebooks that you um, sometimes send people to uh, when they're doing the research? Because a great guidebook also can hopefully tell you a little bit uh, about campus culture as well. You know, I think it's
3: surprising how much you can learn about campus culture from guidebooks. Um, Some that I, that I think are really great is Princeton reviews um, book that's The best, I I think we're up to 387 colleges, or they they change a little bit each year. But Penn Review, it it gives a great description of student life, and I like it, and students like it, because it's really easy to navigate. Every school gets the same amount of space. It's in alphabetical order. So it gives you a good sense of um, the general personality of the school, but one that I like that students don't always take the time in in terms of researching is the FISC guide, F-I-S-K-E. The FISC guide really goes more into depth about what really makes that school unique. So I think that, you know, taking that next layer, it's layer by layer in this research process. Um, So those are two guidebooks that I love. If you happen to have a college that is on the Colleges That Change Lives um, list. I know they also put out a book, but they have a, a list of schools. If you're looking at any colleges there, you must read the section um, from that website or in that book because I don't know of any other resource or guidebook that really goes into the culture as much um, as, that, as that book does. So I love those three resources. Um, an online resource that I... Have been turned to more and more. It's called UNIGO, UNIGO, UNIGO.com. And what I really like about this website is that it has a lot of um, sections where they ask current students to respond to relevant questions. So you're not just getting the rehearsed tour guide responses. These are real students um, that care right. enough to chime in. And one of my favorites is uh, they, one section says, what should every freshman at your school know before they start? If you haven't looked that up and read about what students are, current students are saying about freshmen, what they should be prepared with, then, then you haven't done your research enough. So I love that site.
0: Yeah, and I think um, you and I were talking before um, the show, and I, I agree. I think it's always nice to hear what's nice about those pieces, too, is that they aren't kind of vetted by the college's. Um, so mm-hmm. you're hearing from real people, like you said, you're getting real feedback from students who are there as with anything, I do think sometimes you need to take it with a grain of salt because, um, you know, if for Yelp reviews and things like that, I'm always, right. you know, I always have to put on my critical eye there and say, well, I can appreciate that this f- person had a not so great experience, but I look for overall trends, um, mm-hmm you know, and you look for a lot of feedback versus only a little bit of feedback. Well, maybe you're just dealing with someone who was a little disgruntled, but, you know, if the feedback's not great or is just thinks it's the best thing since sliced bread. But if you're only hearing from, you know, two or three students, it may not be as useful as if, hundred students have weighed in and then you can start to see trends. And um, so, but I, I also, I agree, really great because you're, you're hearing from real people. Um, and, and one of the things we were talking about is the, the uh, goal of kind of hearing from other real people. So what are some mm-hmm. other suggestions um, that you have that maybe don't involve guidebooks or websites at all um, and maybe are about the people that you know? Talk to everyone.
3: Talk to everyone that you know who's attended that college that you're interested in. And a great place to start is your guidance office. Go talk to your guidance counselor because they have access to, to lists of, of previous students from your high school that may now attend that college. So even if you didn't know that person personally, that, that student from your high school personally, you know, I'm sure they would welcome a text or an email or a Facebook message saying, hey, I'm about to graduate from the same high school. I see you're attending a college that I'm really interested in. What was your transition like there? What's been your experience like? So you get that, that human element, that personal connection. And like you said, you always take it with a grain of salt. Everybody has yes. different opinions. But it's at least somebody from your neck of the woods that ended up where you might be too and can give you some, some real life
0: advice. Right, and I think a very, very good point that this is just a piece of your research. This is not all your research to the students who come into my office and say, well, nobody at my school likes this school, so I don't like this school, or my really good friend went there, and she loves it, so I will love it. There, it's only a piece. It can't be your whole decision.
3: Absolutely. One other thing I was going to say is um, I, I always suggest students either pick up a hard copy of the school newspaper, the college newspaper, or they're almost always online, read the editorials. That's almost like having a conversation with that campus community. If you want to know what that, what the students on that campus are talking about, what they care about, what's important to them, pick up the newspaper because that is a great place to really see, you know, what the hot issue is on that campus. And you can get a great sense of, of the culture of the school from that.
0: Which actually brings us to a really good point, which is if you're on the website looking at their um, newspaper, there is a lot of other great information that lives on the school's websites, too. Um, you know, how do you feel about using the school's website as part of the research that you're doing? It's a must.
3: But you must get past the front pages. So like you yep. we were saying about going around taking the prettiest pictures, and you can package it however you want, but get behind the front pages to make sure you you look deeper into, you know, what the students are doing, wh- where they do it, when they do it. Um, but just even beyond students, especially for academics, look beyond that front page. So what are the faculty up to on their department website? You know, many professors will post video interviews or, or blog about what they're researching. That's a really great way to drill into the school specifics. Um, so, you know, I think getting past just the admissions website into the departments or maybe into the club websites. what kind of clubs and sports um, or facilities or, you know, research opportunities... What is it that you want to do on that campus?
0: Go and find it because there is a website for it. And to piggyback on that, while you're there doing all this great research, take notes because, A, you won't remember. Um, It'll all start to bleed together. And, B, a lot of these schools are going to ask you to write a short essay about why you're interested in their school. And these are all the reasons why, ultimately, the school is going to land on your final list if it does. Um, So you don't want to have to do your research twice Do it once, take good notes, and then you'll have that all ready for you when it's time to write those essays. Lauren, thank you so much um, for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Beth. Bye-bye. Absolutely. Uh, All right. Well, we're going to go to the break, and when we get back, we're going to be answering your college finance questions, so don't go away. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's
4: VoiceAmericaTRN.
5: If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash
2: in. Have you checked out Teen Wealth Radio? It's a show for teens, their parents, and educators. Hosted by Brandy England. Along with regular weekly contributors, Teen Wealth Radio will cover the topics that teens need to talk about. Plus, we discuss a book of the week and a movie of the week, and each show will offer a challenge to our teen listeners that they can share on our private Facebook group page. Be sure to tune in to Teen Wealth Radio, live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety.
1: Have you found the beauty inside of you?
5: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
2: You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show.
0: Welcome back, everybody. I do want to give a special shout-out to all those listeners who have sent in their questions for us to answer. And really, please, all of you who have questions, and I'm sure that every one of you does – I Can't imagine we're doing such a brilliant job with the show that we're answering every question that you have. So if you have questions, send them in. It is so easy. You can email them to us at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. So again, it's gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Um, we try to answer these questions either on a, sh- on a segment like this one, or we'll actually sometimes do entire segments um, based on your question. So it'll spark an idea for us that, wow, if someone's asking about this I bet a lot of people have questions question about this and we'll do a whole segment on it. So please keep them coming. We really do appreciate it. Uh, and now let's get to those questions. So my colleague, Alex Bickford, who's a former financial aid officer at Southern New Hampshire University, uh, is joining us today to field all of your college finance questions. Hi, Alex. Hi, Beth. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, and um, my readers should thank you, or my listeners should thank you as well, because if we were, if I was attempting to answer these questions, we'd be in a lot of trouble,
2: um,
0: <laughs> because I know only enough to be dangerous and certainly not enough to be at all helpful. Um, we have a bunch, so I'm going to jump right in. Um, the first one is a little long, um, but I think there's some good stuff here, and it comes to us from Talia who says, uh, I just recently finished your episode understanding how divorce and remarriage affects financial aid. And just as a side note, uh, that is available in the archives. So if you're interested in that describes your situation, uh, take a listen. Uh, and her question is, well, I'm aware this episode aired several months ago. I was wondering if you were able to still answer questions. I had And Yes, we are. Um, currently a junior in high school and product of a divorced home. I spend equal time with each parent, um, My mom makes significantly less than my father, who is also remarried. They were both granted equal legal custodianship or custody. On taxes, my parents switch every other year on who claims me. Does claiming on taxes play any part in who I have to choose on the FAFSA? Am I still able to completely, free of worry, choose only my mother to fill out the FAFSA and use only her income to demonstrate need every year? And am I required to show both parents? So there's a lot of questions in there. Um, (laughs) I'm happy to repeat any of them, but let's start.
6: Absolutely, yes. That's a loaded question, and, and, and I think it's a question that we get a lot, and there's some confusion out there of how this is exactly works, and there's a lot of folks who think that uh, claiming someone on taxes impacts the financial aid. There are some people who think that the custody agreement or the parenting plan uh, should dictate who uh, files the financial aid paperwork, and actually, the, uh, the federal financial aid form, the FAFSA form, uh, has its own set of rules, uh, completely free of of all these other things out there. So what the federal financial aid form says is that the parent who should uh, be using their financial information uh, to allow their child to fill out the FAFSA form should be the parent in which the student lives with more than half the time during that previous year. So to kind of give you an idea, there are 365 days in most years, uh, so there should be uh, a household where that student has spent one more day than the other household. But there are those situations where kids spend, you know, exactly 50% time with each parent. In that situation, then it's the parent uh, who provides more than, than half of the student's financial support. So in this situation, you know, I can't really garner – exactly uh, where, uh, where she spends more than half of her time uh, or who provides more than half of the financial support. But those are the first two guidelines that you should use, wherever you spent more than half your time during the previous year, uh, and then, uh, okay, if it's equal time, then who's provided more than half of my financial support? So it's only one parent in that divorced uh, situation. If that parent is remarried, it will be the parent's spouse as well or your step-parent as well.
0: Got it. So just very quickly to interject here before you move on to the next part, what I'm hearing from you is that claiming on taxes has nothing to do with it. So it doesn't really matter if your father claims you this year and your mother claims you next year. It's really about if you spent 51% of your time with your mother, then you're filling out your mother's information. If you spent 55% of your time with your father, then you're filling out your father and stepmother's information. Correct?
6: That's, e- that's exactly it.
0: Got it. Okay. All right. So moving on. Um, And so one of her questions was, am I completely free of worry? Can I choose my mother to fill out the FAFSA um, and use only her income to demonstrate need every year?
6: So it sounds like uh, in this situation that it's probably a true 50-50 split. Um, So, you know, I would have her take a look at it again and see if there's, you know, a 51% someplace uh, Mm -hmm. and go there. Listen, if it's this close, uh, I will tell you that if it's this close and, and the parents provide uh, about equal support as well, uh, then the, then you are probably in a situation where you can demonstrate that you live with that parent more than half the time. Uh, and so there are a lot of situations like this that are 50-50, uh, but it sounds like in this situation you should be free of worry to do this uh, as long as you did spend that extra half a day with your mom uh, than with your dad.
0: Got it. Okay. Um, so then the next question is, is she required to show both parents? And I think the answer is, it depends right on the form she's actually filling out. Exactly. So I mean, while Talia asked
6: specifically about the federal financial aid form, the FAFSA form, uh, on that form, she's only required to show the parent where she spends more than half the time with. Uh, however, you know, there are a lot of colleges out there, um, specifically private colleges, that may require a another financial aid form out there called the CSS Profile Form. That's the College Scholarship Search Profile Form. And that form in and of itself also requires that custodial household, where she spent more than half the time, to fill out that form. However, many colleges have a supplemental piece to that form uh, that they require families to fill out that would be called the Non-Custodial Profile. So, if the colleges require the non-custodial profile, then dad's information and stepmom's information in this situation would come into play as well. Uh, So, they're trying to kind of gather a a holistic uh, picture of the the family's financials.
0: Got it. So, FAFSA, it can just be the one if that is how it works out. But if you have to fill out that profile, the non-custodial parent and his spouse will then also have to fill it out. All right. That's it. All right, Alex, thank you. I think that is helpful to probably a lot more than just Talia. And I will tell you that it's actually very helpful to me (laughs) because I find myself (laughs) in a somewhat similar situation. Um, Okay. Our next question comes to us from Charlene who asks, what can you do to offset college costs when you don't qualify for financial aid? Big question.
6: Yeah, that, that, that's a tough question, and I think there, are, you know, there are, there are more families than, than folks may think that are in this situation, uh, and, and you know, you may not qualify for financial aid depending on the cost of the college. So the first thing that, that I want I want to say here is that, you know, it's possible that you don't qualify for financial aid, for instance, uh, or need based financial aid at a community college doesn't necessarily mean you won't qualify at a state college or doesn't necessarily mean you won't qualify at a private college. Uh, so uh, as, as is true with the admissions piece, I think it's important to get a good selection of schools that you think you'd be a good fit at uh, and, and identify what schools you think you'd be a good fit at before you determine I can afford this school or I can't afford this school because the financial picture could be very different because the school costs are so different. Uh, So it's completely possible that families qualify for financial aid at a private college uh, and they wouldn't qualify at a state college or um, a community college. So with that said, um, there are a couple of things you can do if you are in the situation where you're not going to qualify for some need-based financial aid. And the first thing I think uh, that you can look at are scholarship options, whether it be scholarships from the college itself in the form of recruitment-type scholarships uh, or outside scholarships. Those are two good ways to find some free money out there to help supplement uh, whatever you can provide uh, to your child's education so the, the college awarded scholarships really comes down to identifying those schools where your student would be a really strong fit academically primarily, but there are other certainly other types of scholarships out there from colleges as well but this, the colleges where they're a stronger fit uh, academically tend to be the colleges that would be more inclined to offer recruitment scholarships out there to help uh, supplement that child's uh, that, that child's financial uh, incentives from their parents so it's a way really to incentivize that student to go to that college so that would be the first thing that I'd look at really actually before you're even applying to colleges when you're in the decision-making stages and you're trying to narrow down that list uh, identify colleges that you think you're a really strong candidate at so that would be the first piece the uh, the second piece uh, is looking at lower college- cost colleges out there. So if you're if you're in a situation where you're definitely not going to qualify for need based aid and you're not really sure about private colleges and and you don't think there are private colleges out there that are going to fit your needs as well, um, look at the state colleges as well. Something else to add on to the list. It's always important to have a financial safety school out there that your family uh, can afford either through. Through payments or through loans uh, without getting over your heads in debt uh, and so uh, first look at the colleges where you're a really good fit then maybe looking at state colleges as well or even the community colleges that uh, oftentimes have those reciprocity agreements and transfer programs uh, to four-year schools and then there are two kind of final ways uh, that I encourage uh, families and students to look to uh, supplement what they can provide. Uh, one would be those outside scholarships that I mentioned earlier. So this is really a lot of the work uh, students would have to do. It's a lot more uh, work than, uh, than actually a lot of students put into it. So the great news is there is that there's some opportunities for students who are willing to put in the work uh, to go out and find some of these scholarships. They could be from a number of different sources, but it could be from your uh, local guidance office, who probably has a lot of information about the local community-based scholarships that are available or the high school-based scholarships that are available. Uh, Or there could be more national scholarships uh, that you could find on on a lot of different search engines out there. There's there's a lot of different apps and there's a lot of different websites uh, that kind of provide a lot of this national scholarship information scholarships.com is a good resource for that, uh, or, or collegeboard.org is another good resource for that. One kind of key thing when you're looking at outside scholarships is a lot of folks kind of get to this time uh, in their senior year. You know, it's kind of January, February. They've done their applications. Uh, they've probably done their financial aid applications, and that now they're looking at scholarships. Well, if you're waiting until now, oftentimes you're probably too late for your first year. A lot of those deadlines could be September, October time frame. Uh, unfortunately, that's the time frame when you're probably going to be your busiest uh, in that year. So I encourage students to look uh, for these more outside scholarships, or the or more national scholarships the summer after their junior year in high school, where you might have just a little bit more time on your hands to go out there and do the work that's going to be required to earn some of these scholarships.
0: Yes. Yeah, sooner rather than later for those is definitely something. Um, when I have students who ask me, I'm looking for scholarships and it is uh, February of their senior year. Usually <laughs> that means they're a little bit late in the process, right?
6: They, they are. And, and, and unfortunately, at that time, what, what often happens is students are, are making choices on colleges at that point and probably have chosen a college that's maybe beyond what their family can afford. Uh, mm-hmm. And so then they suddenly look for scholarships to try to help supplement that. And at that point, uh, you know, a lot of those scholarships have been already awarded. Have, uh, the deadlines have already passed. Uh, and so then the student's in a tough situation and the family's in a tough situation. You know, what do we do here uh, with this college that might be beyond our, our financial reach?
0: Right, right. Um, anything else on this before? Because I'm hoping we can get to maybe one, maybe two more questions after this one. But I don't want to miss sure. anything if there's another piece yes. of advice you have. One, one final quick piece on here uh, is look at the tax uh,
6: benefits that you might qualify for uh, for paying college costs. Uh, oftentimes, families who don't qualify for need-based financial aid at a college could qualify uh, for a tax benefit out there. The specific one that I'm kind of leaning towards is the American Opportunity Tax Credit it tends to be the most generous for typical undergraduate students uh, as far as the amount that is, a- is credited back to them uh, or their parents in this situation, which is up to $2,500, uh, and that's a credit as opposed to a deduction. Uh, and has an income limit of about $180,000. So that's uh, that's a situation out there uh, where if you need a few thousand extra dollars or if you're going to a lower-costing school, that can go a really long way.
0: Got it. Okay, so super helpful information there. We have uh, one more minute for one more question, Uh, and this one comes to us from Stephen, who asks, someone told me that it is best to have my daughter take out the loans and we can help repay them if we are able. Is this actually true? Is this the best way to do that? And that's a a great question, and I think probably one of the questions
6: I get most often, uh, and I think it's a... um, a notion out there that is not fully thought through and not fully understood by whoever is providing that guidance. Uh, what, what students can actually borrow on their own is limited. Uh, the maximum students can borrow uh, it, during their freshman year is $5,500 through the federal government without, a parental, without parents being involved whatsoever. That goes up their second year to $6,500, and then their junior and senior years is $7,500. So the total they can borrow for an undergraduate education is about $27,000. Uh, and the government does this specifically because they want to make sure that students are able to pay those loans back and the students don't get in kind of over their heads uh, with too much financial strength. If students are going to borrow more than this, it falls back on needing somebody to help guarantee that loan. Uh, and it comes down to going through either a state agency that may, may lend money to students or a private loan company that may l- lend money to students. Uh, unfortunately, though, because your student typically in this situation is 18 to 21 years old and has uh, little to no credit uh, and little to no income, uh, banks aren't going to lend to them on their own. And so what that means is that mom and dad or some other co-signer needs to be involved in this to help secure that loan. And what Go I ahead. find oftentimes is that parents who do this, do this thinking that their student's going to pay off the loan. But what they find is their student gets out and may not be able to afford to pay off that loan. And that the burden falls back on mom or dad or whoever that co-signer might have been uh, to help to help pay that loan off to, to save their credit, really.
0: Right. So bottom line here is that having your kid take out all the loans is unlikely to be an option to pay off, to pay for everything. Uh, and so as with everything, right, the individual situation, it's going to be different from family to family, and it's going to depend on how much you need to borrow. And also beware, because you can't necessarily count on your kids. And if they don't know that by now, then they're in trouble. <laughs> Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Anytime, Beth. Thank you. All right, great. Well, we're going to be right back to answer your admissions questions after the break. So don't go away.
5: Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in.
0: Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even co-worker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. Family caregivers unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things. And together, you will promote
1: a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety.
2: You count. Tune into to Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out.
0: Uh, For our next segment, where we're continuing on what Alex and I just did in the last segment, where we're answering uh, listener questions, but for this segment, I've asked two people to join me. The first is Amy Alexander, who works with me here at College Coach and is a former Yale admissions officer. Hi, Amy. Hello, Beth. Hi. Um, And the second is our colleague, Erica Braley, who has kindly agreed to read us the questions um so she is the keeper of the questions um because this way i get to actually answer a few and you may not know this but i really like to talk too so i'm very excited (laughs) because i'm going to get to talk this time so hi erica hello uh all right we're gonna we have a bunch of questions i don't know how many we're going to be able to get to and we if we can't get to them all we'll do another show where we answer listener questions um i'd like to make it a regular segment but let's just jump right in erica and um amy i'm gonna let you take the first question since you are the guest
4: Sure. Thank you. Great. So um, the first question comes from listener Sean, and Sean writes, neither my husband or I went to college, but our two daughters will definitely be attending. I keep hearing that this is an advantage to our daughters in the college acceptance process. Is this true?
1: (laughs) All right, well, I actually would love to take this question because this actually resonates very closely to me because this was my situation. Neither of my parents attended college. I was the first in my family to go up to college. And I do have to say, and I went to Yale as an undergraduate later working at the Yale Admissions Office and learning, yes, in fact, this can be a great advantage. Um, just to give you a personal example, I was very motivated, very driven student, uh, and very involved in extracurriculars, also had a job. And I think the Admissions Office looked at that and viewed my application as Wow, she's really overcome some, some circumstances and, um, you know, didn't have a family that was uh, encouraging education and discussing things that maybe some other more educated families had and really found resources to help her progress and do well and I think that they looked at that in a different light so I think if you are coming from a situation like that where neither of your parents went to college and you're really engaged and involved academically extracurricularly uh, maybe professionally that it does bode well for you so I think that that you want to highlight that and show your circumstances and what you've done given uh, your background I don't know if you want to add to that Beth
0: um, not really. I, I just, I would second what you say. I mean, you in the college admissions process, there are students with all different types of backgrounds and all different things will resonate. And I certainly think, you know, she's not going to get into college just because you and your husband don't have college degrees. But I certainly think, it will be something that they notice. And and, uh, I don't know anyone in admissions who doesn't love to admit first-generation students when they can because it does feel like a particular opportunity for that kid. And so, yeah, just to piggyback on what you were saying.
4: Mm -hmm.
0: All right, Erica, we're ready for the next one.
4: Sure. Um, So this is the next question. I'm interested in application tips for students with learning disabilities specifically ADHD, should this be disclosed? Is it ever a negative in the admission process? Could it be framed in a positive way? Thank you. So uh, this is sort of a big question that's a little bit
0: hard to answer without knowing the specific situation. But what I can tell you is that in general, first of all, colleges are not allowed to discriminate based on learning disabilities, learning differences. Um, But that said... And I don't think that they do. However, I think that people need to be uh, to understand that having a learning difference does not necessarily mean that a college will automatically say, "Well, you know, we generally look for all A's, but this kid has ADHD, so in this case, we're going to make an exception and be okay with A's and B's or all B's." So I think you need to understand that um, the colleges want what they want, and whether or not your child has a learning difference um, it's, they're not going to necessarily make allowances because they have the learning difference. My general rule of thumb is for the student who has a learning difference, um, is that, uh, if it's going to explain something on the application. So if there was a significantly poor performance in ninth grade, but the student was diagnosed with the learning difference and then everything kind of turned around and they went from straight Bs and Cs or worse to, you know, A's and B's or straight A's or, you know, there's a real distinctive difference. Um, The admissions office might really wonder, well, gee, what happened in ninth grade? And if there's no explanation of any kind, then you might think, well, gee, I guess the kid was just kind of lazy and oh, well, whereas at least if you are disclosing the difference, it could help to explain why something was the way it was. But if there's really no benefit to disclosing it, in general, my advice is um, usually that I wouldn't um, because it's not really going to help the application and therefore. The information itself isn't necessarily super useful. And the other challenge is that there used to be a time when the college board made note on the test scores, the SAT scores specifically, of whether or not a student had received extended time. So there would be a little asterisk and you would know, oh, well, this student had extended time. And so it might make you look at those scores um, slightly like, well... It's great that the student did really well, but they had extended time on it. And gee, is that really fair compared to another student? I'm not saying this is a good way to look at it or an accurate way to look at it. But I do know that um, there were a lot of um, questions around, well, is the student legitimately have a learning difference or not? And so nowadays, you have no way of knowing if the student had extended time. They've removed that asterisk. And so now a test score is a test score, which I think is appropriate and how it should be. Because I also think that the ACT and the SAT are trying hard not to give extended time unless a student truly qualifies for it. And so if they truly qualify for it, it's something that they actually need. And I think that's great. I think they should be getting that. But if you then disclose the learning difference and it doesn't really add anything to the application, like I was mentioning before – This is an area where it actually could detract a little bit because it could make the admissions officer say, well, gee, I wonder if they also had extended time. And if so, you know, maybe those scores aren't quite as impressive as I thought they were. So it is a little tricky. It is very, very individualized. Um, And the last thing I'll say on this is that if you are not going to disclose, you do want to disclose once you've been accepted and are trying to decide whether or not where you want to go, because you do want to make sure that the student with a learning difference, that the school knows about it so that the student can be given proper advising and accommodations Um, you don't want to keep that hidden if you ultimately enroll. Um, And it's fine to be asking questions about that before you apply. But on the actual application, whether or not to disclose is really on a case-by-case basis. And Amy, again, I don't know if you have something else you would add or if that kind of covers it for you.
1: Yeah, no, that's pretty well said. I totally agree with that last statement you made. It really is case-by-case, and it's so individual. And there's no blanket statement, I think, with this that you you can really make. Right,
0: exactly. That's the challenge, right? And the thrill, and that's yeah. why we do what we do. <laughs>
5: yeah.
0: Okay, Our next one.
4: Sure. Um, this question comes from listener Leslie. She says, thank you for your show. It is so helpful. I just listened to one regarding where to list additional courses taking on, taken on Common App, but still unclear where to list a BYU online language class for high school students. I know she can request official transcripts, transcript, but would she list it under College and University page with Education or someplace else? Thank you so much.
1: Okay. I'll take that one. Um, that's, I think this one is pretty clear cut, Leslie. I think that you do want to list it on the College and University page. Um, but there's a couple there's a couple things here. One is sometimes the classes are tied into the high school, so maybe the course was not offered at the high school, so the student took it online, so therefore it's going to show up. It's kind of tied into uh, the high school, and it will show up on the high school transcript. If that's the case, um, then you can list it also under the current and most recent year courses, which is also on the education tab on the Common Application, just a couple under uh, Colleges and Universities. So you do want to make sure you don't list it twice, and you do want to make sure that you do have an official transcript that is sent just like your High School Guidance counselor will send your high school transcript. You do want all college classes, online or otherwise, to have an official transcript, so you will get credit for that, um, and they will see your final grade. There
0: you go.
4: I got nothing to add to that. Perfect. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, next question, then, is from listener Diane. Our freshman son took Spanish 1 honors first semester and Spanish 2 honors second semester. His guidance counselor strongly suggests Spanish 3 honors, but our son is not at all interested in continuing and would prefer to use the block for an additional programming course. I know there are countless variables that come into play with acceptance decisions, but how important is three years of a language? Are there institutions that will not even consider his application if he only takes two years? And if so, is there an easy, in other words, an online way of finding out the minimum criteria for a particular institution?
0: So, let's see. There's a few different things going on here. The student who is taking Spanish classes and presumably doing well considering that the student is taking them at the honors level and is being recommended to continue at the honors level, that's usually a sign the student is being successful, um, but the student isn't interested. Uh, let's start there. One of the things that I frequently talk to parents about and students is the idea that, unfortunately, high school is not really the place where you get to really explore your interests. Um, high school is about being broadly educated. So from a college's point of view, their ideal scenario is that the student is sticking with all five major subject areas, math, science, English, history, and foreign language all four years. And there are some schools where they really want to see this. Um, so the more selective you get, the places where Amy worked at and I worked at, Yale and Penn, you know, really, we really did want to see four years of foreign language in high school. So, you know, I would often get the question, well, I did a year in middle school, and so is it okay if I stop taking my foreign language after my junior year because I've had four years? From our perspective, we really wanted a a really good reason why the student wasn't taking the foreign language in their senior year because we wanted to see students in that language all four years while they were in high school. Um, College is about going above and beyond, so that's really what colleges love to see. Students who are going above and beyond what the high school requires for graduation. But more specifically here, I have no way of knowing kind of what the goals are for the student Uh, He wants to take a programming course in place of the Spanish. That makes me think he maybe is interested in something like engineering. Um, And I will say that in the one area where we were maybe a little bit more lax on the foreign language requirement might be in engineering, where um, engineering at Penn actually was the only school that didn't have a foreign language requirement when I was there in terms of taking foreign language in college in order to graduate. So we might be a little lax on it. But even then, my expectation was that the student was going to be at least taking uh, the foreign language through junior year um, and not dropping it before then. Uh, So even there, I, I really I do think that keeping up with Spanish, at least through Spanish three, is probably not a bad idea. All of that said. If he's not looking at highly selective colleges or or overly selective colleges, there are probably way, way more schools in this country who will be fine with two years of um, Spanish than would require three years. So it's really more about the individual school's requirements. And again, the more selective you get, the more important that foreign language is going to be. Um, And is there an easy online way to see this? Nope. Sorry. I wish there was, (laughs) um, but it doesn't really exist. Um, And believe it or not, we actually just ran up against our time limits. We were so busy talking and sharing that um, we're almost out of time. So Amy, is there anything like five more seconds of insight that you would add to that?
1: The only thing I wanted to add, Beth, but you said it perfectly, is that really if you do have a kid who's more science-oriented, especially engineering, if in their senior year they want to take a, you know, a chemistry and a physics or if there is kind of a pre-engineering course and there's no other way to fit it in and they have to drop the language, I am often okay with that if they're going to be applying to those more engineering-focused programs and it's more highly selective schools. So really just to piggyback. On what you were saying, but I do see that happening, and I am, I am okay with that in some select cases. But that was the only thing I really wanted to bring up.
0: Okay, Amy, thank you so much. Erica, thank you so much uh, to our listeners. You're welcome. Next, next week, we're going to be talking about making the most of your college visit. Um, What to be thinking about in middle school, not necessarily admissions, but making good choices in middle school so that you're in a good place once you get to high school. Um, Some suggestions for what you can be doing to find money to help pay for college after you've filed the FAFSA and you're waiting to hear back from colleges. Um, Don't forget, sign up for free downloads of the show on iTunes. And while you're there, rate our show. We'd love to get more ratings from you. Um, The archives for our show are quite literally packed with useful information, so please go Go and check it out. Um, Our survey is also still open. uh, So if you want to share what you think and why you listen, we'd love to reward you with a few free helpful guides on the surveys at www.getintocollege.com forward slash survey. And finally, as a reminder, we are here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific.
2: Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation